Hello and welcome to the Creative Corner Podcast. My name's Jaden and I'm joined by the one and only Tom. Hey! <laughs> this week we're actually going to be doing something different. We're not going to be doing news. We're actually going to start having other developers and streamers on the podcast and basically just chat to them about their upcoming projects, what they're doing, and just a bit of everything really. Um, and this week we're joined by Jitsbo. Uh, I think the intro is better left to him, but he's a former Far Cry 3, Far Cry 4 dev. He's working, he worked at Bosky, uh, worked on Radical Heights and Lawbreakers, two games that didn't do very good, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to put it politely. Um, and he's now turned to indie development, so he's going to talk a bit about those projects. Yeah. So without further ado, here's Jitsubo. Enjoy. Uh well welcome to the interview uh we are joined with uh Jitspo uh, would you like to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your kind of time with game development yeah uh my online handle is Jitspo but my real name is Nathan Wolf and I've been working in the AAA industry for probably ten years I think it's at least ten years and recently about three years ago. The studio was at shut down, and I decided to go indie. So I've been doing indie stuff for over two years. Wow, fair enough. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about kind of how you uh, started with game development? Like, did you kind of go to university? Are you self-taught? Were you starting from like a young age? Kind of what was your beginning with, with game development? Game development has always been something I wanted to do, but it was difficult to get into the industry initially. So I went through uh bachelor in science degree in Clemson University and spent uh many months looking for a game dev job couldn't get into one so ended up going to a small division of Eastman Kodak that did data conversion services so i got to have some interesting experiences there reverse engineering file formats for ancient systems and things like that and Eventually got contacted by somebody I knew from college to work at a small company called S2 Games and went out there, interviewed, everything looked good, but it was right before the holidays. And I was like, well, it doesn't really make sense for me to move out like right before Christmas and then, you know, go back home for holidays. So can I just work from home for a couple of weeks? And they were cool with that. And then it started getting weird and they were like, yeah, financial situations aren't looking super great here. Maybe, you know, you could still come out, but it's you may not have a job after a while. And I was oh, like, wow. uh, yeah, I think I'm going to pass on yeah. that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want to, like, move out to the other side of the country and be stuck there with some ridiculous rent or something like that and no job. So, um, fortunately, I got contacted shortly afterward by a recruiter for Red Storm Entertainment and then ended up heading over there and spent, I think it was seven years there and uh various ubisoft games yeah cool uh so was did that include uh far cry and far cry 3 and 4 yes included far cry 3 and 4 and ghost Re ghost recon future soldier and some other various stuff that didn't come out that i don't think i can talk about <laughs> fair enough um what what sort of work did you do on uh, the far cry games like what was your kind of role so Far Cry 3, I ended up 
on the very tail end of the project, and it was mostly just helping out with some bug fixing stuff and making sure stuff on the PC port worked correctly, uh, finding some interesting bugs that had been there since the previous Far Cry games. Like if you had caps lock on and you tried to rebind your keys, they wouldn't bind correctly. So oh, okay. That was that's that kind of fun stuff. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you find stuff like that? Well, QA finds a lot of that stuff, and then digging through the code is uh that's a, that's a different story there and then you realize wait a minute this was always broken <laughs> <laughs> so then you like load up the old far cry games it's like yeah that never works okay well that's fine we'll fix it for this one <laughs> and then uh for far cry 4 uh like what kind of stuff did you do on that one so for far cry 4 i was working on the multiplayer aspect of the game which a lot of people didn't know existed because it had kind of a weird name in the menu it was like battles of kirat or something like that yeah 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 um but yeah our studio was focused on the pvp multiplayer aspect of the game which uh had kind of like the uh golden path sort of military versus the rakshasa sort of spiritual mystical warriors they had like bows and arrows but they had all kinds of special abilities and they could turn invisible and summon animals and stuff like that so it was, it was kind of an interesting dynamic where you had traditional guns and vehicles versus like mystical animals and bows and arrows and special abilities yeah i did that bring up a lot of kind of like um i, I imagine you'd have to come up with like a lot of creative solutions to like balance it fairly because it sounds like yeah it's kind it of was, unbalanced. It was an interesting balance because it's like, well, if it takes one shot to kill somebody with a bow and arrow, that makes them really powerful. But if it takes two shots, then it makes them really weak. So yeah. it was it was a challenge to uh, kind of get that dialed in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. And then uh, you said you worked on uh, Ghost Recon: Future Soldier. Was that kind of a similar uh, like uh, task, like doing multiplayer and stuff? Yeah, yeah. We were also doing multiplayer for that. So Redstorm was kind of known as sort of the multiplayer PvP studio as far as uh, the Ubisoft Studios goes. So we ended up doing a lot of multiplayer tasks for various projects. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Jaden, you want uh, to add anything there? I think that's pretty much all I want to say. It sounds <laughs> yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I play a lot of PvP games, so I assume that really helps with your transition to boss kick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, PvP has always been kind of my thing. I always love playing the first-person PvP shooters. I mean, I grew up on things like Quake and Unreal Tournament, stuff like that. So Yeah, j- just quickly on that, Digital Paintball 2? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Paintball <laughs> 2 was a mod. Well... I guess technically still is a mod for Quake 2, but when id Software released the source code to Quake 2, I was able to take that and make it a completely standalone game that you can just download. You don't have to have Quake 2 installed anymore, so it became a completely standalone game that was built on the Quake 2, or I guess they call it id Tech 2 engine now. And if anybody wants to check it out, it's uh, at digitalpaint.org. And we actually do what we call Social Saturdays on the first third and if it exists fifth saturday of each month since the crew that regularly played the game has kind of grown up and gotten busy with adulting and all that kind of stuff so (laughs) we don't have as much time to play games every day like we used to so we try to designate a time where we can all jump on and play and hang out that sounds awesome 
So um, with the transition from uh, working on, you know, like Ubisoft titles to then going to like Bosky, like what kind of instigated that change? Well, a lot of the people that I knew at Redstorm actually went over to Bosky. All right, okay. And also it is the kind of game that I've always wanted to work on. Like I like working on the fast-paced multiplayer shooters and something like the Ghost Recon series is a little, you know, slower, more methodical, sure, and yeah. tactical type games, but I like the really fast movement and just like you know, crazy adrenaline pumping chaos going on all the time, like the Quake series and things like that. So I was hoping that this would be an opportunity to make like a near AAA quality game and bring the arena shooter style gameplay back. But unfortunately, it didn't quite pan out the way uh, we all hoped it would. Um. So in terms of 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 uh, with Bosky, like, what was it like working for them? Uh, even compared to like Redstorm, was it like a bigger team? Um, like you know, was there like a, a big difference, or did you kind of just like ease straight into it? It was significantly different. So at Redstorm, we had I think around 150 people, and we were a, basically a helper studio for a larger studio in Montreal that was heading up the project. And there were actually several helper studios, so there were like probably thousands of people working on the Far Cry games simultaneously. And if you've ever worked on a game development project or software development in general, you know that when you have tons and tons of people working on something simultaneously, stuff is just broken all the time. <laughs> like, if you imagine conservatively, if each person only breaks something once the entire project which is you know unrealistic to begin with sure but even in that case there's enough to keep the build broken every single day of the entire project when you've got that many people working yeah on yeah it. yeah and it happens more often than that so there's constantly things going wrong and it felt like you know in a way it was kind of like treading water because it's like you're trying to progress but really it just felt like you're just fixing bugs over and over and over again because things are constantly changing old systems break when new systems get introduced and just like it it was kind of frustrating because it's so difficult to like feel like you've accomplished anything when it's like well um i made the things that used to work work again that's all i did this week <laughs> yeah i can imagine so, that, that being very 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 frustrating it was nice to switch over to a smaller studio at Bosky. We had around 40 people and like the, the progress was night and day as far as people knocking stuff out. Cause we'd have like a play test in the morning. People would implement stuff, change things. And then we'd have like another play test in the afternoon, get some feedback, change things. Whereas at, Redstorm, it felt like we did a playtest like once every three weeks or something like that. And it was oftentimes um, not the most morale boosting experience. It's like, well, everything's broken. Uh, I guess I'll just <laughs> go back to my desk now. <laughs> did you start working on Lawbreakers prior to Overwatch or was that? Yes. Sort of... Yeah, we didn't know Overwatch existed. And it was an unfortunate thing when that got announced. It's like, oh, well, crap. Now we're going head-to-head -head <laughs> yeah. with Blizzard, 
even though the game is not like technically the way it plays and everything is very different than Overwatch, but at a surface level glance, a lot of people thought it was the same kind of game, and it went against us in two ways. One, if people thought it was going to be like Overwatch and wanted more of Overwatch and played Lawbreakers, they'd realize the game was very different. And two, if they wanted a game that was different from Overwatch but thought it was like Overwatch, they wouldn't even check the game out, and then they'd never get to experience that uh, kind of fast-paced arena shooter style gameplay that we had going on with a lot more mobility and vertical combat and stuff like that. So yeah, exactly. when you heard that Overwatch was like, you know, in development, that it was coming out, like, was there kind of like a, a worry within boss key? Like, were people like, like, what are we going to do? Did <laughs> big, you guys make any, <laughs> yeah. Did you guys make any like conscious changes yeah, to the so... game to meet it or? It it was it was definitely um, like I said it was, it was kind of an oh crap moment and we tried to veer the game more toward a grittier like hardcore thing which I think may have been a mistake like we were trying to differentiate ourselves from Overwatch and go for the kind of darker grittier style graphics and aim more toward like the the hardcore players and stuff like that. You know, if Overwatch is, like, bright and colorful and casual, then we wanted to go for, like, dark, gritty, hardcore. But I think that just ended up alienating alienating more people than it embraced. And uh, we might have actually been better off, you know, running more in the Overwatch direction with the, uh, with the more, uh, I suppose, warm and welcoming graphics. And sure, yeah. You know, just um, not catering toward the the hardcore players. Because one thing I really learned on that project is that there's a lot of vocal hardcore players, but they are the minority of gamers. There's a lot more, like, casual, average players. So if you're catering toward, you know, the, the really hardcore competitive players, you're aiming for a very, very small fraction of gamers in general and you need to have a larger player base for those types of players to even be interested in the game you know if you've got a competitive scene and stuff like that you need to have a large non-competitive base so that there's lots of people playing the game at any given time which then drives the interest in the competitive scene because if you don't have people interested in the game you know just more, more casual average players interested in the game then there's not a demand for the competitive scene. Yeah, well, I mean that that makes that makes sense. Was there, you know, like once kind of uh, Lawbreakers came out, and then obviously like with Overwatch out, was there you know a sense of like, um, this is not going to succeed the kind of way that we wanted to? Like, were you able to kind of foresee the the failure of Lawbreakers or? Was it always like, oh, no, this is going to do really, really well, and then it kind of came as a shock that it didn't do as well as you guys had hoped? Um, I think we got some hints when we were trying to get, like, 10,000 people playing the um, the betas or alpha. I can't remember which build it was, but, you know, we didn't quite get the, the numbers we were hoping for. and And then once the game launched, there was just, like, it almost felt like nothing felt like nothing changed. Like I thought it was going to be like the game's going to launch and then it's just going to be all out chaos. There's going to be so many people finding bugs and we're going to be, you know, working 
super late studio fixing things and putting up new patches and stuff like that and it just sort of kind of launched and then it was just sort of almost like crickets and yeah yeah it, it just like it didn't you know we didn't have I think we had more players during the alphas than when the game launched and it was just kind of like oh and then it just sort of dwindled down from there and so we tried to do um some pretty aggressive updates and patches and stuff like that and it just didn't didn't jump the the uh the player base up the way we were hoping to sure yeah really unfortunate i was gonna say it's not really your department but is there uh, do you know why the price tag can't like there was a price tag rather than it being free because i think initially it was lawbreaker yeah so free to play that's i think we really failed to we were trying to dial in what the price tag was going to be the problem is the the idea that it was going to be free to play probably should have never been said to begin with like that was that was like the really really early ideas like we're going to make a free to play game with Nexon this was actually before I was even on the project so I didn't have anything to do with that and then we never really said anything beyond that but it's just one of those things that like that's the information that's out there and that gets spread around yeah it's what and people then hold on to fairly early on in the project it felt like okay this is this free to play thing is not going to work so we're going to make this be a actual like premium title but the announcement of the price was delayed for quite a while because we were trying to figure out like what that price would be and um but it was still announced i think it like a year before or something like that i mean it was announced pretty far ahead but it just didn't get the news that it needed to spread so it's like uh, yeah it's yeah. okay it's gonna be you know thirty dollars but then like a lot of people never heard that so they were still expecting it to be free to play right and it kind of got the um stigma that like oh it was going to be free to play until the very last second and then we switched it which is not the <laughs> yeah. case at all it just you know i don't know it's, it's tough with that kind of thing um yeah i think a lot of people would have like put the information out as like free game now $30 and that's always the way it's going to be marketed with like journalists right. and like a lot of that so I think it like it really sucked that it did stick with lawbreakers right yeah and it's really difficult once people are expecting something like if you increase the price or go from free to a paid product like people kind of have this sort of entitlement that like well I heard that it was supposed to be free therefore it should be free and I shouldn't have to pay for it because I yeah, believe sure. that this is a free product. Even though when we were working on it, we realized trying to squeeze in a lot of those free-to-play mechanics just felt like grimy. Like they're they're just not the kinds of things that you want to do for this type of game. Sure, yeah. And yeah, yeah. we just were like, okay, we're just gonna make it we're just gonna make a good game and sell it. But then that was not communicated well to everybody. Um, it's difficult to communicate that kind of thing. Like, how do you how do you go about ensuring that everybody's aware that this is now a paid product and no longer free to play? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the the transition then from Lawbreakers to Radical Heights comes as kind of a surprise because obviously, uh, you know, Radical Heights. I 
if my understanding is correct, was kind of coming out of, like after Fortnite was already out and after PUBG was already out. Um, which obviously with the 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 with Lawbreakers coming out like sort of alongside or around uh, Overwatch and like that being an issue, like what was the strategy with uh, Radical Heights like in trying to enter the market of Battle Royale um, after having already tried to compete with another like huge title? I would say Radical Heights is pretty much a dramatic 180 degree turn in what we tried to do in the studio. So Lawbreakers, we tried to go kind of against all of the trends. Like we were hoping that the arena shooter trend would come back, you know, because things sort of come and go in the gaming world. And so at the time, a lot of the slower paced shooters and stuff were popular and it's like, okay, it's, probably time for arena shooters to make a comeback we're gonna bank on that and we were also working on making just a really high quality high fidelity product and dialing in the graphics and the gameplay and making everything really tight and like super solid and with um with radical heights it was like well instead of going against all of the trends Maybe we try going with the trends, put our own spin on it, and just work on getting something fun and playable out there. Don't worry about how janky it is. Just like get something out as quickly as possible. So there were a few things going on at the studio at the time. Obviously, um, you know, we were bleeding money, bleeding talent and stuff as well. Uh, a lot of people were bailing. And we were trying to get some various um, deals with other publishers to work on other titles, but that kind of thing takes sometimes six months or so. Didn't really have the time to work something out with that. So it's like, all right, we got to make, just try to make our own thing as quickly as possible, get it out in like super early access and also do free to play as opposed to pay to play like we did before. And like I said, just kind of like a complete 180 of what we did it's, it almost feels like in every aspect you know we did a first person shooter okay now we're going to do a third person shooter we did yeah. like dark and gritty okay we're now now we're going to do bright and vibrant okay we did you know fast paced uh arena shooter okay now we're going to do kind of large open uh battle royale and the crazy thing is like it almost worked and it it was kind of enlightening how you hear people say, oh, you know, some the reason certain games don't succeed is because they're, you know, chasing trends or this, that, and the other thing. And the thing that kind of opened my eyes with Radical Heights was that, you know, as much as I hate to say it, copying what's popular actually seems to work. And a lot of the things that sort of succeed or, or fail to succeed are still high profile enough that people talk about them and or they are successful but maybe not as successful as some people think they should be and you know there's lots of vocal players talking about oh you know this is just copying trends or you know if they did something original they would have been more popular but nobody really sees all of the titles out there that try to do something original and just get no traction whatsoever because people don't know what to expect or you know it's just like how do you how do you market a game that has a completely unique concept to anything anybody's played before? That's one thing I've been learning recently is that people have 
like genres and ideas and stuff that they want to play and you want to create something that that fills that desire as opposed to creating something completely new and different that nobody's ever heard of and therefore doesn't necessarily have an interest in playing yeah um yeah absolutely uh do you do you feel like this kind of um because obviously with, with Lawbreakers, you were kind of trying to do something different, like especially as development had started before kind of Overwatch. And then obviously the kind of flip to uh, Chasing the Trends and stuff like that. Do you think this kind of 180 flip was one of the reasons why Boss Key kind of like failed or or do you think there was uh, there was more to it? Oh, I mean, the studio like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what aside from like a, a big publisher giving a lot of money to keep the studio running. I don't know if there's really anything that could have happened to necessarily bring it back because we were in a situation where, unfortunately, Bosky was that size of studio that's really tough. I think so. You've got like indie studios that are small. You know, like ten or fewer people, and then you've got like the massive AAA studios that have like thousands of people and they've got they can basically take over the market with the power of marketing and name and other stuff and then a medium-sized studio is good for making a great game i think but it's not able to make a game and market it enough to bring in the mass of players necessary to sustain the size of studio, like all the salaries that you have to pay. And it's not small enough that it can do, you know, just kind of okay and cover the salaries of two or three people like some smaller indie studios can. So it's in that really awkward spot. And um, I'm not sure, you know, either we needed to pop a game out that blew up and did really well or uh get some really solid financial backing from a publisher or something like that yeah sure well i mean obviously uh um you know it had a lot of fans enough that there is a a, an upcoming fan remake i don't know if you've you've heard about this (laughs) uh you're talking about radical heights yeah 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 radical heights yeah yeah it's it's pretty cool to see they've been a few community projects uh both for lawbreakers and radical heights people trying to bring back you know the spirit of it or um you know salvage what they can from it unfortunately most of the stuff was like server based so there's no way to get access to that so you know a lot of that stuff just has to be completely remade from scratch sure yeah but i think it's a a, a testament to kind of um, the fact that you know both Radical Heights and Lawbreakers had some some really really great ideas, and I think um, you know I I think despite the, the the fact that they they both inevitably failed, I think they both had some amazing ideas. And I was wondering, kind of for you, like working on it, like what was it like, kind of hearing the criticism? I think more so, especially of Radical Heights. Like, was it kind of difficult, like working on it and then hearing all these people kind of um, you know criticizing it and stuff like that? Um, the thing that I found kind of interesting in when you're talking about criticisms is 
how accepting people are of just like kind of wholesale copying ideas and how critical people are of things that are kind of similar but not really for example you know the the battle royale we put our own spin on it we put instead of having like the closing circle we had like the closing grid and stuff yeah and you know people called that out as cool unique innovative things but then for example we had a character in lawbreakers that had a pistol in each hand and could kind of have this like warp ability and people immediately compare that to tracer who has two completely different types of weapons actually they're basically the same weapon in each hand um but they're completely different from the uh the gunslinger weapon and it's it's interesting how people will like criticize things like that and it's like oh yeah it's just a copy of tracer when it's completely different yeah then when you have things that are identical like nobody complains that there's like uh you know an m4 or an m16 or an ak-47 or whatever in like every video game it's just like yeah it's just you know it's the way it is but if you have a completely unique weapon but it's kind of like this other unique weapon in another game it's like oh it's copying that weapon it's like but they're they're completely different so it's just it's just interesting to me and maybe i'm just i don't know looking at it through a different lens and spotting these things but i just i find it funny how many people were kind of commenting on uh, Radical Heights being innovative and interesting because of the things, you know, there's some things that we copied wholesale from the Battle Royale genre, and then there's other things that we made that were different, and people really thought those, diff- people focused on the things that were different. So uh, it's it just kind of boggled my mind a little bit, I guess, because I'm just thinking like, well, you know, with with Lawbreakers, we tried to make everything unique. Like, the game modes were unique, the characters were unique, the abilities, for the most part, were unique, or at least the, the combinations of abilities, and nothing kind of fit into the traditional tropes, and I think that kind of hurt the game, because people jumped in, and, you know, you're expecting a certain character to do a certain thing, and, and Lawbreakers, it's like, they're they're not like that, they're probably different from any other game you've ever played so there's no like comfort in there you just jump in and you have no idea what's going on and people probably just got frustrated and quit fairly soon whereas if you jump into something like overwatch and you've played team fortress 2 like a lot of the game modes and characters and stuff fit the same tropes that were in TF2 and other video games. Yeah. And they just sort of built on that. So there's like a little bit of comfort and familiarity there. And I think, you know, we, we probably tried to be a little too radical with lawbreakers and change too much. It's like, we probably should have stuck to something a little more traditional and added some new elements to it. I think it's really difficult, especially when you've got a completely new studio new ip like everything is new and nothing is familiar at all so if you have a big name and stuff you can probably go in and push a a very radically different game out there just because you've got a fan base built up already but for bosky that was probably not the correct approach yeah absolutely jaden were you gonna ask a question before 
Would you ever make another game similar to Lawbreakers? I would love to, but um, it's, you know, there's, there's basically, here's what my dream is. Um, my dream was to, when I, when I started indie things, like, okay, I want to start off, make some small projects, build up, and ideally build up to get enough funds to make my dream game, you know, an awesome, fast-paced, mobility-focused, arena shooter-style game get enough funds that I could build that and have it fail and still be financially okay. Because it's something that I want to do. It's just I have very little faith that it will be financially successful. So I want to get myself in a position that I could do it, have it fail, and still be okay. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Was it interesting seeing um, streamers play Radical Hearts? Because I know Shroud... And uh, summit, and I think a few of them did like a tournament on there. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was super interesting, um, and it was really fun. There's a streamer named Rob, like R A W B, who mm-hmm. was doing these crazy things, where he would get his whole community, uh, and they would all try to join a server at once, and um, <laughs> then they'd run and like have these giant fist fights. Like they'd all go to one spot on the map, and then they'd have these like you know, crazy different things that were they were doing that I'm sure some other random person that happened to get on that server would be like, what in the world is going on over here? <laughs> uh, so a lot of that stuff was really funny. And just seeing people's reactions, like when they discovered the under area of the map and they're like, what in the world is this? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And then, like I said, they, uh, Twitch had that tournament, which was really interesting because it focused on the one of the unique aspects of the game which was the money aspect so you collect cash and stuff as you're playing and the objective was you know during this tournament to get the most cash um so it wasn't about like necessarily winning the battle royale but winning the battle royale would get you more money so you could uh because you get like you'd like double your cash so you could either put your cash into an ATM so it would be safe, or you could pull a bunch of cash out of the ATM and then go in, try to win a battle royale and double that cash. Or yeah, if you all. lost, you'd yeah. like lose half of it. So, How long did you develop Radical Hearts, just quickly? Everything was just kind of a blur at that point in time. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was like four weeks or four months. <laughs> but it was, yeah, I mean, it was... It was something we pulled together at a really impressive rate, especially considering like every week there were like one or two people leaving the studio and, you know, that wasn't that big of a studio to begin with. So what we managed to pull off in a very short period of time was pretty impressive. Was there like a lot of like crunch with it? Like just Um, a lot of us were working a lot of hours just because we wanted to see it succeed. I don't know that we had any kind of mandatory crunch or anything like that sure but like i said that that whole that whole time period was just kind of a blur and yeah i was definitely working more hours but it was you know there's a lot of stuff going on because especially once the game launched and we're trying to do updates and we're also dealing with like cheaters and stuff like that so uh you know our qa is trying to test 
builds and also ban cheaters and i was in there banning cheaters and stuff as well <laughs> and you know it's kind of like all hands on deck doing all kinds of different things just to try to keep the ship afloat yeah how I does mean... how does the banning cheaters situation work because i know call of duty has a big problem with that now but Fortnite seems to be pretty on top of it so i just wanted to know how that you go about that uh, it's it's a i mean cheaters are a, just a massive problem in games like multiplayer games in general like i didn't realize you know it's something i've had to deal with a lot in paintball too but it's a smaller community and so it's like you know you, you identify someone as a cheater and uh kind of shame them and and ban them and you know there's like people are well aware of that that's kind of something you don't do in this game uh but something like radical heights where it was free to play and we didn't really have a good system for like we we try to do some hardware related bands but we didn't have everything like set up as well as it should be and also the fact that for the bigger games out there there's actually like entire markets of cheat developers where you pay like a subscription fee and they build cheats to work around the anti-cheat systems and stuff like that oh, like wow. it's a massive problem there's stuff that i was not aware of and just the scale of it and the fact that people would openly blatantly do it with no shame and even stream it on like youtube and stuff like that and it's just like oh my gosh so it's like you know you find somebody streaming cheats on youtube and have to ban them also the fact that it was built on unreal engine and there's lots of cheats that were already designed you know for unreal engine that they were able to quickly adapt uh it is just uh it's such a pain <laughs> in the butt it's like so many resources get wasted was your system just like a report sort of system or... uh so we had reporting we had stat tracking we had screenshotting um you know whatever we could think to put in there um but we didn't have like a full-blown anti-cheat like executable protection system thing that would have taken maybe a little bit longer to uh to work around um it was mostly server side stuff so we could do kind of reactionary stuff but we really needed more uh client side protection and that's it's just one of those things like you need you either need to pay a service or you need to have a you know a substantial amount of resources dedicated to just fighting cheaters all the time and it's really unfortunate <laughs> because there's so much time and money and stuff just basically wasted just to try to prevent cheaters from ruining the game for everybody else. Do you reckon like if Radical Heights had kind of been like not released as, as early as it was that like you would have had time to have kind of develop this like ways around this and kind of also like put more development time into Radical Heights or was it just like not an option to like have to get out like when you got it out? Um, yeah, there's, we're, our options were pretty limited. Um, you know, if we'd gotten some kind of publisher backing or something like that, then we could have spent more time 
working on it. Uh, a lot of the issues, it's hard to say, like, you don't realize them until they come out. Like, we didn't sure, realize yeah. that cheating was going to be as significant as it was. Otherwise, you know, I probably would have spent some more time <clears throat> dealing with uh, implementing some better anti-cheat stuff and ways to do hard work banning and things like that. Uh, but it's just, you know, but then if I did that, then it would have meant some of the other stuff, like the BMX bike and stuff, probably wouldn't have gotten worked on. So would it have been better? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so obviously after after Bosky, like you went into indie development and you you kind of made Goobloop and you're making at the moment uh, the Fist of the Forgotten. Um, was that like a conscious decision to go into indie game development or? Were you like still thinking about kind of pursuing kind of AAA development and going into like another company kind of similar to Bosky, or did you like once you left you were like right I want to start doing like my own stuff? Yeah, so the first thing I did was I went to the other side of the planet for about a month and you know just went out and uh, did some photography and uh, checked out some cool scenic landscapes and stuff like that. Yeah, sounds um, chill. I was over in Thailand <laughs> for a while. Really beautiful place and you know kind of get my head together and i could not see myself going back to the large studio you know something like a ubisoft style studio and also i didn't really want to go to a medium-sized studio like bosky again and deal with like the amount of pressure to you know get a product out um like it's i didn't want to deal with like the the another startup style thing you know there there were a few options that could have been like that and it's like man it's just so much work but all that work is not really for me True. like you know i'm doing all this work for something that i i hope the studio succeeds and stuff but at the end of the day it's not my ideas that i'm i mean some of them are my ideas but it's not like my vision overall that i'm trying to build so I wanted to have an opportunity to be like, okay, I want to make my own thing, whether it succeeds or fails, you know, it's all on me and I, I won't have, you know, the marketing to blame for its success or the, um, you know, some designer for a bad idea or something like that. You know, it's, it's all, it's all going to be on me, good, bad, or otherwise. And, um, I had some ideas. A lot of them were too large in scope and then finally i was like because i was thinking of doing something completely different from what i've done in, in the past i was like maybe i could do a very story driven game with a lot of dialogue and interaction with characters and stuff like that and then i quickly realized that that the scope of the project i was thinking of doing was just way too massive and if it's too massive in my head then it's probably going to be 10 times more massive when i actually go and realize all the things that I didn't think about when I start on it. Yeah. So I was like, all right, why don't I do a project that's sort of in my bread and butter wheelhouse of character movement, but not a full blown like 3d first person shooter, do something that is in the platformer space, because that's going to probably be a little bit easier to finish. And so I started working on fist of the forgotten. I was like, very simple concept. Uh, small girl, big fist, run around, jump, punch things. <laughs> and I started out with like that as the premise. 
And then as I started developing it, you know, I became attached to the characters and the backstory and um, the world and stuff. And then it's like, well, I want to build this out to be um, to kind of do it justice. Like the the ideas that I have in my head for the the stories and the plot twists and stuff like that. Like I want to build this up to where you know people can have an emotional connection to the character and stuff. So then that that project started becoming a little bit larger than I initially anticipated. And after uh, two plus years of working on that, um, I finally decided to participate in the Ludum DeRay game jam. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just do, cause I didn't want to get, I, I was, you know, I, I have kind of a scatterbrain and I'm constantly coming up with ideas and stuff like that. So um, I was like, I just want to focus on this thing. Just, knock it out, get it done before moving on to something else. And then finally decided to participate in a game jam and be like, okay, maybe, um, maybe it's good to, to try some different stuff. And I made goop loop for Ludum DeRay, uh, 47, I believe it was about six months ago. And the theme was stuck in a loop. And I was like, Oh, maybe we'll have like a piece of goop that literally sticks to <laughs> like a physical loop. <laughs> And then it just uses physics to drive it and roll it around. And based on some of the feedback that I got, um, some of the comments in people that people had made when they played the game in the game jam, they're like, oh, this was the most fun game I played. So you got to make this into a full game. I'd gladly pay money for this. And so, you know, I got pretty hyped about that. I was like, all right, cool. I can probably just... You know, I'll work on it for like one day a week, and then after a couple months, I could probably get this polished up and um, released as a, a full game. And I'll just put it out in early access as soon as possible and, you know, get things rolling, maybe get a little revenue coming in and go through the process of releasing a game and get experience with all that so that when Fist of the Forgotten gets ready to release, then I will have some experience with that and the whole thing won't flop like most indie games do unfortunately yeah. so i um i put it out in early access like as soon as i could and started iterating on the graphics and adding more to the level and stuff and it did not do particularly well i think i rushed it way too much um and didn't build up like a, a wish list base and some other things and got kind of burned out um trying to contact you know press and stuff like that it's super difficult like it is so difficult to release an indie game these days and get any kind of visibility because there's just like hundreds of games coming out every day and uh it you know there was that's going back to having something that's very unique that a lot of people aren't going to connect to like a goop in a loop like there's not like it's the it's a novel and interesting and fun mechanic and like once you get in there and start getting the hang of it it's it's kind of fun to learn and play but when you just sort of see it scrolling by on steam or something like that you're just gonna be like what is this uh so you know i've had i've had a hard time getting traction with that i'm planning to do go out of early access um posts uh, Steam Summer Sale. I don't want to release in the middle of Summer Sale. So the game is basically done right now. 
it's still in early access. I'm just trying to find the appropriate window to yeah, launch sure. it in. So I'm thinking probably toward the end of July, because I think the Steam sale will be done around then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I don't want to release it in the middle of the Steam sale, and I've got to have at least a month or so to get like review copies out and get press coverage and stuff like that. So that is my plan for the launch and maybe it'll gain some traction there. But as it stands now, I've sold two or 300 copies and, um, you know, making less than $5 a copy. It's, uh, it's not enough to live off of or even cover the cost of living just for the days that I spent developing it, which is unfortunate, but, um, I suppose it's a good learning experience. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say, uh, do you have any kind of like advice for people in your situation for kind of like trying to get your game on steam and even like trying to get it, uh, kind of noticed? Like, I know you said that you, you struggled a bit with getting it noticed, but like, is there anything that you've kind of learned in that process that like, you know, you wish you'd known beforehand? It's difficult because you want to get visibility and interest in the game. And in order to do that, you have to put a significant time or money investment into the game to get some nice looking art and cool looking gameplay and stuff like that that is going to drive the interest in the game. Because what you want to have is something like Ten to thirty thousand wish lists when you launch, I think, so that um when the game launches, it has uh more visibility and it gets in the the new and trending list of games because if you're not on that list, your game is basically dead in the water like nobody yeah nobody goes into the deep trenches of <laughs> steam and and digs up like these games that have like less than five reviews and says i'm gonna buy that one um so it's it's one of those things you know you got kind of a a snowball effect the the game industry well it's true of i think just about anything it's not just the game industry but like you've got um a graph that's you imagine a graph that's kind of like flat and it very slowly creeps up and then right at the very end it spikes so like 97 percent, i think is the stat I, i read that about 97% of the games released are not profitable. Wow. So once you, there's a, there's a threshold you cross. And once you're up to the top 3% of games, like there's a very narrow window of, yeah, I made enough money to get by. And then there's the games that just kind of explode. And if you're looking at like the average, the average is actually a lot higher because you've got a few games up on the top end that are just, raking in millions and then you know you've got games at the bottom end that are not selling anything and it's like on average you know that's a much higher number but if you look at the median value it's it's pretty abysmal like yeah, yeah most yeah. people are just not making any kind of money off of that do you think like there's something that like steam could do to kind of help promote these things like um uh a little while ago i I was writing about kind of like how nintendo doesn't really kind of um 
publicize like indie games like on their kind of discover tab it's all just like really popular games like there's fortnite on there and you know there's like their like main titles like they do an awful job of kind of promoting indie games like do you think there's something that steam could do like better like to kind of help uh you know games like as you were saying like um you know if you go into like the new releases and you scroll down there's definitely gems in there but people won't find them because they're just buried amongst all this other stuff is there something that steam could do to help kind of get those games more noticed it's it's tough like they're doing some things with the uh the steam festivals and stuff unfortunately um the restrictions on the festivals were such that i could not enter goop loop into them because it's like you have to have a game that is going to release in the next x number of months but it can't already be out or in early access right so unfortunately goop loop was already out in early access and it's like oh i got kind of got screwed out of that um and i it's tough because steam ultimately is trying to make money as a business and things that would promote the smaller indie games are not very profitable so there's not a lot of incentive for them to do that because if you have a small indie game like if they're if they're promoting big games like $60 titles and stuff like that and they're taking a percentage of the sales each one of those sales is going to net them a lot more and obviously there's limited space on the platform so promoting the big titles is going to gain them more revenue and if you have like some of these smaller you know sub five dollar titles or whatever first of all they may not be as appealing in general and second of all even if they do get a sale off of that they're going to get a small amount of money so financially they're not as motivated to do that um i'm not really sure like i think perhaps a uh a better curator system might help like they've got a curator system um i'm not sure like i i was only really aware of it because i'm i'm trying like i just recently sent out some some keys to curators on steam i don't know if that's going to go anywhere but um like i hardly even knew the system existed if i you know if it weren't for me trying to uh send some stuff out to gain some visibility Sure. But like, do you guys follow any curators on Steam? Do you uh, use that system at all? No, not really. I was gonna say like, uh, it's something that I'm kind of vaguely aware of, but yeah, uh, exactly. It's one of those things that you just sort of scroll by. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. almost all of the top curators are just like meme curators, like yeah. Commander Shepard. It's like I'm Commander Shepard, and this. Oh, is, the is that what that is? Steam. That's yeah. That's one of the. Curators. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And and it feels like most of the i mean maybe not most of them but it may, it seems like about half of them are just sort of like memes like that yeah and they're not really that useful so you know perhaps a better system for discovering games uh one thing that really helped me out off the steam platform was um somebody did uh a youtube video uh it's called i think the the youtube channel was like best indie games and he did a video of a bunch of upcoming platformers that looked really cool and featured Fist of the Forgotten on there. And I didn't know about that. I just happened to be looking at my wishlist numbers. And on May 1st, like, I had this massive spike in wishlists, and I had no idea what caused it. So I was scrambling, looking all around. It's like, where, where did this come from? And uh, 
finally someone linked me to that video and I was like, oh, sweet. But those things are, are so difficult. Like, you have no control over whether or not sure, somebody yeah. happens to discover your game. The best you can do is just, like, do your best to get it out uh, on the platforms you have access to, like your own YouTube channel and Twitter and doing interviews like I'm doing with you guys and, you know, hope that word spreads and some of these uh, bigger creators catch a glimpse of it and decide to feature it somehow. Um, but it's it's really tough getting visibility. And the, the thing that also makes it tougher is since everybody's struggling for visibility, um, people, you know, see the same guides and stuff to get visibility. And once everybody's doing that thing, then you don't have visibility anymore because everyone's doing that. So yeah. then you have to find like the next thing to to get some visibility. So you're constantly having to try new things and you might spend a whole lot of time, you know, trying to participate in some event or something like that and nobody sees it. So you've spent many hours working on something that gained you nothing or sometimes you don't do anything and it just happens to show up in a video somewhere and it's like ah what do you do because it seems like sometimes you you do so much work and things seem like they're going really well and then you get nothing from it like i saw somebody tweet that they had um their game featured in a tweet that went viral and it made absolutely no difference in their sales. Oh, wow. Like, okay. Uh, I think it was somebody that they had their game featured in. Can you pet the dog? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that uh, Twitter account. Yeah, I think Basically, so. Yeah. They had yeah, yeah. Yeah. A thing yeah. where, you know, can you pet the dog? Um, and if you can pet the dog or not, and you know, that they'll have like <laughs> a, a, a video of the dog being petted. Um, and so, you know, they had a, a viral tweet on that and it, and it's just like, yeah, back in the day, like this would be a big break, but now it's just nothing. And I've had similar experiences. Like I got uh, a streamer that played Goop Loop and had um, over, well over a hundred viewers, and she was getting super into it and having a lot of fun. Zero sales that day. It's just wow. like, wow, what like <laughs> like what do you have to do to get sales? Yeah, as an indie dev anymore, it's so difficult. Like. So. Obviously, that's like a huge disadvantage of being an indie developer, you know, this kind of like trying to get visibility and stuff. I can imagine. I mean, from the sound of it, it sounds incredibly frustrating. But is there, you know, pros to working kind of as an indie developer as opposed to like your time at, at Boss Key and, uh, and, and Red Something? Like, is there is is there benefits? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, there's benefits. I mean, you get to work on your vision of the game. So that's probably the biggest vision. Uh, you know, a lot of game developers tend to be very creative people. And when you're working with a large studio, it's almost like you have to shut that part of you off. And it's kind of unfortunate, but um, you either have complete chaos as everyone has different visions of what they want the game to be and things kind of go in circles and um, the game goes nowhere. Or, you know, you have a creative director which has a specific vision of what they want the game to be. And um, statistically, most people are probably not going to agree with that vision, but they're, you know, going to work the job and they're not necessarily going to be happy with what they're doing. 
Um, it's just, you know, one of those unfortunate things of what, you know, what it's like being a creative in a, a large studio. So you've got a lot of people in there that are, you know, unhappy and they would love to go out and make their own vision of a game. And me personally, I like to work on lots of different things. Like my brain is just all over the place. So it's nice for me to jump between like 3D modeling and gameplay programming and texturing and sound design and music composition and all these different things. So I'm not kind of stuck doing the same thing day in and day out. And when you're working at a larger studio, like it makes sense for people that are most skilled in one particular subset of skills to continue working on that same thing over and over again because they're the most optimal at it. But you don't get to branch out and do new and unique things, learn new skills, and kind of see how all of the stuff fits together, which I think is unfortunate. You've got people that work on one small subset of game development at a large studio, and they don't necessarily realize how all of the pieces come together. And I think if more people were given opportunities to work on a variety of things, they could, it would, it would make things better overall, because it's like, if I'm making a model, but I never have to rig the model, then I don't understand the troubles that the rigger has to go through to deal with this model that I've built. But if I'm, if I go through the whole process of modeling and rigging and animating, etc., then I realize, oh yeah, it sucks if I build shoulders this way. I should probably build them, build them this other way so that they're easier to rig. Uh, things like that. But um, yeah, it's just you know when you're when you're stuck in a in a big studio like that, it's almost like you're stuck working in a subset of a subset of a subset of game development a lot of times. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and uh, like, obviously, you know, you're able to work on on you know one of your kind of dream projects, which is Fist of the Forgotten. Like, can you tell us a bit about that, and and also kind of the importance of like movement in your games? Because you know, I've noticed like with with Goop Loop, like obviously that's like a a huge like physics based like movement system, and then obviously Fist of the Forgotten is like precision platforming, and that's all about movement. And you were talking before about like the importance of kind of fast paced like movement and lawbreakers and stuff like is that a big theme for you and then just obviously i just want to know a bit more about kind of fist of the forgotten as well yeah so i i love mobility based games where you've got a lot of momentum and you're doing things to try to preserve that momentum so you know an early example would be uh quake 2 strafe jumping where you jump and you kind of turn a little bit to sort of trick the physics into letting you move faster and then you just keep jumping because if you stay on the ground it slows you down and then you can you know, keep jumping keep slightly turning build up momentum and move around and then you can like hit ramps in the levels and jump higher things like that and in lawbreakers we were doing all kinds of crazy mobility based things like swinging around on grapples and uh laser boots and uh, time dilation, all kinds of crazy movement and stuff. And I wanted to make a game that embraced that kind of mobility, but um, something that was a little smaller scope. So I decided to make a side-scrolling platformer. And um, 
brought in a lot of elements like sliding. So if you crouch, you it reduces your friction. And if you crouch while moving down a hill, the gravity pulls you down and you build up momentum. So you can slide down the hill and then you can jump and you can maintain that momentum. And then there's various unlocks that you get for the fist later on. Uh, my favorite is the grapple. So you can actually like launch the fist out kind of like a a rocket punch except there's this kind of electrical beam that attaches you to it and then it lets you kind of swing around like on a rope or like spider-man and so as as the levels progress and you get more and more abilities for your character they become more interesting and challenging and you've got to use you got to start chaining all these mobilities together you know you like slide slide jump slide jump punch slide jump punch grapple slide jump punch grapple wall jump like all these things that you start chaining them together and then um i've got some cool stuff with moving platforms and dealing with motion relative to moving platforms i've spent a lot of time dialing that in so if you're on a platform that's moving and you jump you don't just jump straight up you inherit the motion of that platform so you can do that. You can also grapple to moving platforms and they'll pull you along and like kind of slingshot you around. So all kinds of fun stuff related to that. That may or I mean, some of that stuff I'm sure has been explored in platformers before, but I'm bringing a lot of the experiences that I've had from the, uh, the first person shooter genre to the platformer space. So hopefully there's some fun new mechanics that people haven't really played with before, or at least it's polished to a point where it's like a lot better than what people have experienced in the past. I mean, it it sounds like a lot of fun. Has it been kind of fun to develop? Like, has it been fun to kind of come up with all these like different ideas and implement them and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, game development has its fun points and challenging points and frustrating points. But there have definitely been a lot of like, oh man, that's that's so much fun, and I just sit there playing around with it for a while instead of getting other work done. <laughs> and then there's some of the things like dealing with, uh, you know, collision detection not behaving correctly and stuff like that. And it's just like hours of staring blankly at the screen, um, trying to get the stuff dialed in. But you know, I want it to be like the best it possibly can be. So I'm spending a lot of time just trying to dial all the movement in so everything behaves near perfectly. I can imagine that's uh can be quite frustrating. Is there anything kind of like outside of video games that you like enjoy doing like uh movies or music or whatever? Yeah, I mean I enjoy doing photography. Um I enjoy playing paintball although we have not played paintball in quite a while. Uh obviously with the pandemic going on I haven't yeah. played recently but um prior to that our team leader had another child and you know has been busy with family stuff so the rest of us have not uh been organized enough to get some outings going on so but you know that running around playing first person shooters in real life is pretty fun <laughs> <laughs> and it's good exercise you know nothing motivates you to run like getting shot at yeah <laughs> true <laughs> um anything else you want to add Jaden before we uh before we get to the favorite games 
Uh, I was thinking more, did you play video games as a child? Or like... Yeah, I you, never... Are they... I never yeah, really I had just, like did a play console. A um, so most of the games I played were on PC. Started off with some early like basic games on the XO86. Or 8086, rather. Um, and then... Um, let's see. Stunts was a big one. I don't know if you've played Stunts. That's obviously a very old game that I played <laughs> on a 386. But that was one of the games that got me really into um, kind of like wanting to make games. I think because you could actually edit the levels and make tracks and stuff. So that was a lot of fun. It was a kind of I racing think... game. I, a modern equivalent would probably be like Trackmania. So it had, you know, jumps and loops and stuff like that, but obviously much earlier graphics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your top five games of all time and why? And Far Cry 3 better be on the list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, the unfortunate thing with Far Cry 3 is that, like, after working on it so long that, you know, well, at Far Cry 3 didn't work on as long, but, um, you know, when you when you work on one of those games for so long, by the time it launches, you're just kind of tired of it. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't, sadly, I don't think the Far Cry games are going to make my uh, my top five list. Um, I'd say Quake is up there. That's one of the games that really got me into modding games and me- messing around making levels and stuff like that. So that has a special place in my heart. Uh, I, I don't know if it's it's kind of cheap to say Quake 2 as well because I was also... <laughs> modding that and that sort of introduced the uh the strafe jumping mechanic that um a lot of arena shooters have embraced since then um and i would definitely say lawbreakers is up there in the top five like i had so uh, so much fun both working on and playing that game like it's there's there's a big hole that was left when that uh game shut down um yeah i can imagine uh let's see the tribe series is fun too like the sliding down hills and jumping up and jetpacking around (laughs) that kind of mobility stuff is fun uh played a good bit of uh tribes ascend and tribes vengeance um hmm It's yeah, okay if you can't think of anything. Might be <laughs> on the top Put you five. on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely, at the time, it was, it's, it's difficult to say, like, top five of all time, because there's, the, there's games that are like, that was amazing back then, but now it's probably not worth playing. Like, sure. you know, you go play Trackmania instead. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it holds a special place in my heart, so um yeah is there anything i know what you're gonna say uh, i was gonna say paintball 2 but that's sort of a mod of quake 2 i sort of lump paintball 2 and paint and and quake 2 together since that's all sort of one package sure yeah is that five i I don't know yeah (laughs) close close enough is there anything uh is there anything upcoming that you're excited for hmm you know, I Fist tend of the to... Forgotten sounds pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that Fist of the Forgotten <laughs> game sounds pretty awesome. Like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one being done. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like I, I've not spent a lot of time, like, 
keeping up with games that are coming out and i i i've gotten to the point now where i just don't get that hyped about games that much anymore because a lot of times it's a letdown so i just wait until they come out and then because like cyberpunk was probably one that piqued my interest recently (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of the stuff that they were promising about oh yeah like every um character in the game has like a life and they go around and they you know work their job and go back home and and i was like oh you know that might be kind of a fun game to just just go in and just like stalk somebody and see what they do and but (laughs) like the end product i don't think quite lived up to that expectation sure um i don't know that it's a bad game i think it was just the the hype level of that game was so high that it would have been nearly impossible to actually match that that's uh that's all the questions I have. Do you have any more, Jaden? I think that's pretty much everything we've got to say. When can we expect Fist of the Forgotten? <laughs> uh it's probably gonna be a couple more years before that comes out. <laughs> that's fair enough. It's yeah. one of those one of those no, projects that yeah, I feel like I'm I'm the more I work on it, the further away the starting line gets, but the further line further away the uh the finish line gets as well. So I'm constantly, you know, the more I do, the more I realize there is to do or the longer things take, you know, the the more systems and stuff you've got in a game, the longer it takes to iterate on things. I think the most fun time to work on a game is right at the beginning because you go from nothing to, hey, my character can jump. Hey, my character can (laughs) move and do these other things. And then later on, it's like, oh, now I have to deal with all these bugs that happen when my character jumps in certain (laughs) situations. (laughs) And it goes from, like, making massive progress in just a few hours to spending a few hours dealing with this one little case of, oh, yeah, if I'm near this specific edge and I jump, then this weird thing happens and (laughs) it's not (laughs) enjoyable. And now i got to fix that. And, you know, nobody's ever going to notice that I spent five hours doing this thing. but people will notice if i didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we are very hyped for it and we're really looking forward to it is there anything you want to plug while you're here any other kind of uh projects or anything that you're kind of just doing that you want to plug well i mean goop loop is going to be uh it's out in early access now you can go if you search for goop loop on steam it is no longer the only game title with goop in the title uh there is one other goop game but if you search for goop i mean you'll you'll find it easily enough uh another one popped up there so i can't i can't claim that spot anymore i was really surprised that was it i was like wait a minute i searched for goop and it's like there's only there's like a couple dlcs and then goop loop and it's like really nobody uses the name there's so many games on steam and i'm like the only one that used the name goop um but uh yeah there's that and if you want to wish list this to the forgotten that would help me out a lot because like I say, I need probably 10 to 30,000 wish lists so that when the game launches, it has a lot of visibility and shows up on the uh, new and trending lists or whatever on steam. So that other people can fi- find it. And, you know, it has kind of a, a snowball effect. Um, and of course, paintball to digital paint.org. It's completely free. You can grab it and, jump in on some of the social Saturdays, first, third, and fifth Saturday of each month at around 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, so, yeah, those are those are my, my big projects. 
Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking with us. It's been uh, a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Our pleasure. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably oh, it. One oh. other thing. Um, I am doing, I'm live streaming the development process of these games. So oh, awesome. if you go to twitch.tv slash jitspo, um, I'll actually be doing some live streaming right after this interview. But <laughs> I, I start around a bit after 7 p.m. Eastern time, somewhere between 7 and 7.30, and uh, run until midnight ish whenever <laughs> that sounds great awesome well thank you very much <laughs>